Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Indoubt. My name's Courtney, the Indoubt Coordinator, and I'm so happy to have you with us. On this week's episode, Isaac is joined by Christopher Ewan, a speaker, author, and Bible professor. Christopher recently published a book titled Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, and this is the main focus for today's episode. Isaac and Christopher talk about the reasoning behind the title of his book and discuss sex, desire, and relationships as part of God's grand story. Christopher was actually recommended as a guest to us by Rosaria Butterfield, who was a guest on InDoubt for episodes 159 and 160. Christopher came highly recommended to us, and we're all looking forward to this conversation, so I hope that you're able to learn from it and are encouraged. Well, it's a great privilege to have with us today author, speaker, and Bible professor Christopher Wan. Uh, So thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. Yes. As we jump into this conversation, uh, primarily about sexuality, about your new book, before that, I just want to ask, for those who are unfamiliar with your story, and that's myself a little bit too, could you just walk us through um, your life and your your conversion, which is obviously a part of your life? Yeah, sure, sure. Just kind of in a nutshell, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but wrestled with uh, my sexuality from fairly early on, I didn't come out of the closet until my early 20s, and when I did, I told my parents, and it was so amazing in God's grace and His sovereignty. He Actually, my parents came to faith through that crisis, but I went in the opposite direction. Um, I'm from Chicago, and I was going to dental school in Louisville, Kentucky, pursuing my doctorate in dentistry and trying to live the life, be a dental student while also having fun. I was partying, unfortunately, started doing drugs. And I need to always be clear that not all gays and lesbians do drugs. And uh, not all gay men are promiscuous. I know that might sound kind of funny, but uh, it, it, some, people, some people somehow believe that. Of course, that's not true. That is part of my story. But, but amazingly, how... God even redeems, you know, every aspect of your life as we come to Christ. Well, I I went in that direction. Um, While I was a dental student, I actually began selling drugs. And for a time, my parents didn't really know what I was doing. And and eventually, I was expelled from dental school. And so I moved further south to Atlanta, Georgia. And there, I just kept doing what I knew how to do best at that time, which was have fun and and, uh, party and and do drugs, sell drugs. I also became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. And my parents didn't know the extent of uh, my rebellion, but they knew above anything else that I needed to know Jesus Christ. So they prayed for that miracle. They prayed that I would just fully surrender my life to Christ. Well, eventually I was uh, and my parents even came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I, <laughs> I kicked them out. I, my dad, before he left, gave me his very first Bible. So they kept praying. My mother prayed for a miracle that God would do whatever it takes. She fasted every Monday for seven years and once 39 days for my, for, on my behalf. And this miracle came with a bang on my door, and I was actually arrested, um, caught by the federal drug enforcement agents, and uh, found myself in jail 
a place that I never thought I would be. One time I was walking around the cell block, passed by this garbage can. Of all things, I found the Gideon's New Testament on the trash. I picked it up and went back to my cell, began reading it, not thinking that this is going to somehow be the answer to my problems, but as we know that God's Word is not simply just ink on paper, but it's the very breath of God. And I began reading it, and it began to first convict me, not just of my rebellion, but that I had put my identity in the wrong thing, that I realized that my whole life uh, I was told that I am gay. And eventually, when I got older, I bought into that lie. And, and I'm not denying the reality of experiencing attraction or desires and intimacy with the same sex. But I made that a category of personhood, as I think many of us do as well. That sexuality became who I was when in reality sexuality is how I am. So that's a key concept that I needed to be able to separate who I was from my sexuality. That I am gay, uh, and, you know, for me meant that this was the core aspect of who I was. And I kept reading God's Word and, and realized that God was, was not calling me or anyone to heterosexuality, but He was calling all of us to holy sexuality. And I talk about that in my, my first book with, that I wrote with my mother, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. And I introduced that concept of holy sexuality there and uh, decided to flesh that out in my new book. But anyway, I was called to ministry while I was in prison. I, I put faith, my faith in Christ and in while I was in prison, and I was called to full-time ministry while I was in prison, and I got out of prison and applied to Moody. I, I actually ended up doing three years. My sentence was shortened. I uh, applied, went to Moody Bible Institute and then went on to seminary and, um, and began speaking on this really important topic of sexuality. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, praise God for that. Thank you for sharing your your story. And I just want to have one question about it. You know, when you talk about your your relationship with your parents uh, in your time mm-hmm. in your time of rebellion, I think that's really important that you you really emphasize that. And it's so cool that you you've written your first book with your mother as well. That's that's really yeah. really cool. But what was your perception of your parents uh, in your time of rebellion? Like, what were you struggling with that, or were you kind of numbing it just with having fun, or what went on in your heart and your mind as you considered your parents when you were rebelling? Well, I mean, I think, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I wouldn't, I'm that much different from, you know, you know, other prodigals, and I mean, I guess if we're, if we're really honest, we all are prodigals mm-hmm. or we're prodigals, but I think at that time, there's a point in which you almost turn your conscience off, and you begin uh, kind of buying into the lie that uh, none of this matters. I mean, especially if you are not a Christian, if this is all there is to life, then why not? Then morality is just completely dependent on each individual. As long as you're not hurting someone, then, then it's okay. It's okay to uh, do what you want to do and, and as, you know, have fun as long as you don't hurt someone. I, I think that's, that, was, that was my mentality. I'm, a, I'm an adult you know, kind of live and let live, I, I think is, it was, was my mantra. So my parents, they're, and in reality, they actually did not really 
preach at me or or tell me that was that I was living in sin, but just the fact that God had truly radically transformed their lives, and I saw that that was a bit offensive to me and um, but but just from their lived out living out the gospel, I think i I saw the power of the gospel to to change them, and it wasn't something that for me, I took seriously until later, but it definitely planted seeds, just uh, their silent witness, and that I was able to to see um, how the gospel had really flipped their lives upside down. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. You mentioned earlier this new book you've written, which in its full title is called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. So, uh, Christopher, I'm wondering if you could first maybe explain what it is that is the problem or issue today that you see that has caused you to write this book, and then just what the main emphasis of your book is. Yeah, I I would say the reason why I wrote this book was I I saw something lacking. Uh, There's been... There are other books that are out there, and several of them focus upon uh, what the the Bible says, specifically uh, the biblical text, and giving a defense for a biblical sexual ethic that uh, specifically talking about the prohibitions against same-sex relationships. And those are very important texts, and yet we can't build Christian life simply on God's no. What I felt was we needed to have a, a more thorough discussion about God's yes. And this meant that we needed to talk about sexuality through the lens of theology, more specifically biblical and systematic theology. And that's kind of scary oftentimes for Christians because they think, oh, theology, that's just for those really heady academians, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a theologian, I'm just a Christian. I, I just want to follow Jesus. Well, that's not true. If theology is really knowledge of God, well, every Christian must have knowledge of God to become a Christian. And as a matter of fact, I, I kind of argue an atheist is a theologian, just a bad theologian. So really the question isn't whether one is a theologian or not. The question is whether we are... A good theologian or not. And so I, I wanted to contribute something that I hadn't really seen yet, and that was to discuss sexuality through the lens of theology. Mm, that's good. We're going to dive into that a little bit more. Uh, the, the subtitle yeah. of your book, as I said, it indicates that we first have to, um, we, we have to see sexuality in light of God's grand story. So before we look at the specifics, mm. I'm just wondering if you could communicate what exactly you mean by God's grand story. Yeah, God's grand story is the work of God, his redemptive work um, that we see played out through the pages of Scripture. And so obviously it begins with creation, then it goes to the fall, and then, uh, you know, the Old Testament leads up to the coming of Christ, so redemption, and then ultimately consummation, which is the end times where um, everything is consummated, you know, coming the completion um, through the work of Christ. So... When we think about God's redemptive arc, four things, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, that actually is a great framework to better understand sexuality. So 
In your years of ministry, Christopher, and your teaching and your writing, is there an aspect of this grand story, God's grand story, that you feel is essential to the discussion of sexuality that is perhaps maybe misunderstood or even ignored when it comes to our understanding of of sexuality? Yeah, I I do. So, uh, for example, my, my subtitle, Sex, Desire, and Relationships, um, how do we better understand these things and the aspects of sexuality uh, when we, uh, you know, see how it is all shaped and it should be shaped by God's grand story? So first of all, uh, in creation, we're all created in the image of God. And, you know, I think that's a, a, a concept that uh, we don't really see talked about much. But interestingly enough, it's something that uh, maybe even the more progressive or liberal Christians embrace a lot, you know, and, and talking about the value and dignity of all people, particularly those in the gay community. It's important for us to see even those who have yet to know Christ or are believing a distorted gospel are still created in God's image. And that gives everyone value and dignity that we should be aware of and not to demonize and not to uh, make fun of or talk with disdain about an image bearer of God, whether they identify as gay or not. So that's an important place for us to start. But then we can't stop there. And this is where our friends in the progressive churches, what they miss is the second aspect of God's grand story, which is the fall. I think many of them probably even might deny that very important aspect, which is which comes from Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they rebelled, they ate the forbidden fruit. And as a result of that, that, that consequence of their sin is what we, in theology, we would call original sin. So original sin is not the actual sin of Adam and Eve, but original sin is the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve, which, first of all, is death. So death came into the world, which means not only spiritual death, but also physical death but also guilt, which is probably one of the hardest aspects, uh, doctrines for people to swallow. Uh, And I'll be honest, I was one of those people. How could, you know, something that I never did, and how could I be responsible or guilty for something that I never did, right? Adam and Eve, they (laughs) they ate the forbidden fruit. I didn't. But here's what's so interesting, is that, Imputed guilt and imputed righteousness go hand in hand. I don't know. I've yet to meet any Christian that complains about being made righteous for something that they never did. And yet, if we don't complain about becoming righteous for something that we absolutely did not do and that is imputed to us, then we have no right to complain about being made guilty for something that we never did. And actually, if we were never guilty, then there's no need to become righteous or to take on Christ's righteousness. So that's important thing. So second thing is guilt. And the third thing is that we all have a sin nature. And that helps us to better understand when people say, well, I've had these same such attractions for as long as I remember. Some people even claim that they're born that way, which to date, there really isn't any evidence for that in science. And, and even though some people might think that, they are born gay. I always tell Jesus has some really important words for people to to hear, which is that we all must be born again. So even though people think they're born gay, well, Jesus says you must be born again. And that really applies whether we're 
think we're born a, an alcoholic or born a liar or a cheater, we all must be born again. So understanding the concept of the fall and the redemption, how Christ came to redeem us, including our relationships, you know, especially in light of Christ redeeming us and the consummation. When we think about uh, marriage and the meaning of that, that Christ came, he didn't die for us so that we would marry, but he came to die for us so that we would have him. And so that helps us to put relationships and marriage in context that isn't our ultimate goal, but our ultimate goal is to have Christ. And also how marriage and relationships, and even I would argue our sexuality, is all temporary in light of the consummation. And the struggles that one might have as a single individual or just a person wrestling with sexual brokenness, which I believe we all are, uh, focusing on the redemptive aspect, the power of the cross, and what that means. That it doesn't mean that our temptations and our struggles will be eliminated, but it means that with Christ coming, he has set us free from the bondage of sin, but we will continue to struggle and fight and have this wrestle between our flesh and the spirit. So I think that's kind of a, a real quick overview of, of certain things and aspects of the grand story, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, and how those aspects can help us have a better, more fuller understanding of sexuality. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Christopher, for taking us through that. Now, you, I mean, the title of your book, Holy Sexuality, you speak of this holiness. This word, I mean, we use it all the time. We, we sing about it. What exactly maybe is holiness, and why not just title your book Sexuality in the Gospel? or right sexuality, or true sexuality, or biblical sexuality. Yeah. Why holy? <laughs> well, holiness, scripturally, the meaning of holiness, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, really means being set apart. So it's not just, I mean, we've kind of made it today as meaning kind of purity or sinlessness, and, and, and it does mean that, but it also means set apart. And, and I wanted to, in a sense, show how biblical sexuality is set apart. I mean, if I, 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 I'm basically holy sexuality is biblical sexuality, but I wanted to juxtapose it and maybe kind of use it a play off of words and, uh, you know, using the same beginning letter of H because we have this paradigm, which is heterosexual and homosexual, which is a really a secular paradigm that was birthed out of the mid-1800s, German psychiatry, that they really at that time, what they were initially trying to do was name the phenomenon of sexual attractions that were either toward the opposite sex, heterosexuality, or toward the same sex, homosexuality. But what ended up happening was, as they came up with these terms, heterosexual and homosexual, what happened is they really created a new category of personhood. So it was at that point that then sexuality was linked and tied to identity, which is a core concept. It's my second chapter in my book, uh, that I mentioned a little earlier in my t at the end of my testimony that I really bought into this lie that, the sex that sexuality was the core of who I was. So I wanted to come up with this alternative, a kind of a set-apart reality called holy sexuality. And what holy sexuality means is, quite simply, it's two paths, one of two paths. The first is... If you are single and not married, you know, then how, how do you live faithful to God regarding your sexuality? You will be sexually abstinent. 
The other path is if you are married, biblically married, then how do you live faithful to God? Well, you will be faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So quite simply, holy sexuality is chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And those are really the only two paths that are laid out the, that God blesses uh, on how to live in relationship to our sexuality. That's so good. Thank you for that. You were able to kind of portray that very concretely. So thank you. Um, what are some important things you'd say to Christians who may be listening to our, this, our conversation right now who find themselves uh, with friends and family members who are struggling with their with their sexuality. And, and as I was thinking about this question, I wonder if there's a difference between how we engage with a, a friend or family member who doesn't think that they're struggling, so they're affirming their maybe their homosexual behavior, and maybe those mm. that know that they are struggling. Maybe there's a difference there. But what, what are some important things we'd say to them and do? Yeah, I, you know, I'm glad you made that distinction because I, I, that's a very important first distinction that we need to make. Because if there's someone who does not like you say, they're, they're not struggling. You know, sometimes parents come to me and they say, oh, my son struggles with you know, same-sex attraction. And I ask, well, is he struggling or is he embracing it? And usually the case is you know, that they're not really struggling. They, they've given in, believe that this is who they are. Some even say, you know, try to integrate their faith and their sexuality, which cannot really be integrated. What I say is many times they have just denied the faith altogether and in those situations, we know that their sexuality is not their biggest problem, but it is faith in Christ. So what we want to do is, is really focus on that aspect. Sexuality is, is really a secondary issue, a, a peripheral issue. Some people might have tried to integrate their faith. And I don't know what the numbers are in Canada, but here in the U.S., several studies say that 70% of Americans say they are Christian. And boy, I wish that were true, but it's, it's not. There's kind of a cultural Christianity, or they've misunderstood what the true gospel is, um, and yet they say they're Christian. So I, I'm happy that they haven't rejected the idea of Christianity, but I know that what I need to do is to share with them uh, the true gospel, uh, whether they already say they, they are Christian or not. But I want them to actually uh, to hold to you know the beautiful faith uh, that is passed down from the apostles all the way through the early church to today. So um, I, I'm not going to necessarily question them or argue with them, but I, I think one thing that I can do, that we can do in a positive way, kind of use reverse psychology, <laughs> we can say, you know, what is God teaching you this week? Um, you know, maybe, you know, I know you're a Christian, that's wonderful. Can we memorize scripture together or uh, maybe do a Bible study together and uh, I really believe that as we delve into the Word of God, uh, the Holy Spirit will have an opportunity to make the truths from Scripture take root in our heart. I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, someone named Rosaria Butterfield. She's a really good friend of mine, and her story is truly phenomenal. Uh, she was a complete atheist, a, a feminist, a queer a philosopher, uh, English professor at Syracuse University, tenured, and she wanted to study us crazy Christians, and part of that research, she needed to read our Bible, and she did as an English professor, and God met her. I mean, the Holy Spirit just just convicted her, uh, and, and I've seen that in, in others as well. So I, I think 
encouraging that to get in the Word of God um, and to do that with our immature Christians that, that we can, you know, help, help them to get into God's Word and to, to see the beauty of, of His truth. But then how do we walk with Christians who hold to the true gospel, who also know that same-sex relationships are not God's will? So in other words, they, they hold to biblical sexuality, and yet they struggle with attractions toward the same sex. I think what they first need to realize is this battle that they're, that they're battling out is not really that uncommon, and that it is something that when we put it in light of God's grand story, every one of us is in a daily battle against our flesh, against our sinful temptations, fighting our desires. So it's not that much different. It's not really that unique. And, and I want people to know that so they don't think that they are all alone. Because uh, we have, in a sense, stigmatized it in the church that this is somehow a very, very unique or strange experience so that people are left out in the cold and left outside with their own struggles and no one should have to struggle in the church. So that's one of the first things to let them know that they're really not that much different, even though they might feel different. But in light of eternity, in light of you know, the sinfulness of humanity, the reality is every one of us is, is broken and every one of us is in need of a mighty Savior. So I, I think it's, it's knowing that they're not that, that much different and then helping them to encouraging them to really delve in and to foster intimacy with Christ. Um, you know, through all the things that we know, the, the um, spiritual disciplines, I think that's really important. Uh, a great recent book, uh, David Mathis, um, The Habits of Grace, was really helpful for me, actually, just in the past few years, kind of gave me a kickstart in my, in my daily time with God. But then the second thing is really key, and that is a local church, that is community. Uh, God has given us the, the vehicle, the, the context in which healing occurs, in which corporate worship occurs, and we, we've sometimes left the local church out of the picture, and I think we need to bring it back, particularly in this conversation around same-sex attractions, that uh, the church has kind of gotten a black eye, and, and I think, you know, we're not perfect but we need to uh, bring it back because this is where discipleship, the, the context for discipleship really should occur. Uh, we can have accountability. We hear the word preached to us. Um, the ordinance are practiced. And, and even, you know, if discipline needs to occur, uh, that's where it will be done and done in a restorative way. So I think it's important that we encourage, uh, very much emphasize the need for the local church. Yeah, that's that's so good. Thank you so much, Christopher. Um, we're we're out of time here now, but we just really do appreciate you taking the time to to chat with us today. If you're listening right now and you'd like to learn more about Christopher and or his his new book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, you can go online and search ChristopherWan.com, and that's Y-U-A-N. And from there, you can find access to the book and a lot more. But anyways, once again, thank you so much, Christopher, and I hope to have you back on again. Oh, thanks for having me on. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm so glad that Christopher was able to join us and that we could have the opportunity to hear about his story and learn from him. If you'd like to find out more information on Christopher, you can go to his website at ChristopherEwan.com, and we'll have that in the link section for this episode as well. 
If there's anything you'd like to share with us, please do. We love hearing your stories and anything that you'd like to share with us on what we can do better. So you can send us a private message on social media or you can email me at info at So I hope you join us for next week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 